英語聞き流しリスニング、英語テキストと MP3 音声ダウンロードはホームページからご利用いただけます。88thpp.com、88thpp.com。Chapter 37 In which is continue the story of the famous princess m y k a m i k o n a with other droll adventures. To all this, Sancho listened with no little sorrow at heart to see how his hopes of dignity were fading away and vanishing in smoke, and how the fair princess Micomicona had turned into Dorothea, and the giant into Don Fernando, while his master was sleeping tranquilly, totally unconscious of all that had come to pass. Dorothea was unable to persuade herself that her present happiness was not all a dream, Cardenio was in a similar state of mind, and Lucinda's thoughts ran in the same direction. Don Fernando gave thanks to heaven for the favor shown to him and for having been rescued from the intricate labyrinth in which he had been brought so near the destruction of his good name and of his soul, and in short, everybody in the inn was full of contentment and satisfaction at the happy issue of such a complicated and hopeless business. The curate, as a sensible man, made sound reflections upon the whole affair, and congratulated each upon his good fortune, but the one that was in the highest spirits and good humor was the landlady. Because of the promise Cardenio and the curate had given her to pay for all the losses and damage she had sustained through Don Quixote's means. Sancho, as has been already said, was the only one who was distressed, unhappy, and dejected, and so with a long face he went into his master, who had just awoke, and said to him, Sir Rufal Countenance, your worship may as well sleep on as much as you like, without troubling yourself about killing any giant or restoring her kingdom to the princess, for that is all over and settled now. I should think it was, replied Don Quixote, for I have had the most prodigious and stupendous battle with the giant that I ever remember having at all the days of my life, and with one backstroke, swish. I brought his head tumbling to the ground, and so much blood gushed forth from him that it ran in rivulets over the earth like water. Like red wine, your worship had better say, replied Sancho, for I would have you know, if you don't know it, that the dead giant is a hacked wineskin, and the blood four and twenty gallons of red wine that it had in its belly, and the cut off head is the bitch that bore me. And the devil take it all. What art thou talking about, fool? said Don Quixote, art thou in thy senses? Let your worship get up, said Sancho, and you will see the nice business you have made of it, and what we have to pay, and you will see the queen turned into a private lady called Dorothea, and other things that will astonish you, if you understand them. I shall not be surprised at anything of the kind, returned Don Quixote, for if thou dost remember the last time we were here, I told thee that everything that happened here was a matter of enchantment. And it would be no wonder if it were the same now. I could believe all that, replied Sancho, if my blanketing was the same sort of thing also, only it wasn't, but real and genuine, for I saw the landlord, who is here today, holding one end of the blanket and jerking me up to the skies very neatly and smartly, and with as much laughter as strength, and when it comes to be a case of knowing people, I hold for my part, simple and sinner as I am, that there is no enchantment about it at all, but a great deal of bruising and bad luck. Well, Well, God will give a remedy, said Don Quixote, hand me my clothes and let me go out, for I want to see these transformations and things thou speakest of. Sancho fetched him his clothes, and while he was dressing, the curate gave Don Fernando and the others present an account of Don Quixote's madness and of the stratagem they had made use of to withdraw him from that Pena Pobre where he fancied himself stationed because of his lady's scorn. He described to them also nearly all the adventures that Sancho had mentioned, at which they marveled and laughed not a little, thinking it, as all did, The strangest form of madness a crazy intellect could be capable of. But now, the curate said, that the Lady Dorothea's good fortune prevented her from proceeding with their purpose, it would be necessary to devise or discover some other way of getting him home. Cardenio proposed to carry out the scheme they had begun, 
and suggested that Lucinda would act and support Dorothea's part sufficiently well. No, said Don Fernando, that must not be, for I want Dorothea to follow out this idea of hers, and if the worthy gentleman's village is not very far off, I shall be happy if I can do anything for his relief. It is not more than two days' journey from this, said the curate. Even if it were more, said Don Fernando, I would gladly travel so far for the sake of doing so good a work. At this moment Don Quixote came out in full panoply, with Mombrino's helmet, all dented as it was, on his head, his buckler on his arm, and leaning on his staff or pike. The strange figure he presented filled Don Fernando and the rest with amazement as they contemplated his lean yellow face half a league long, his armor of all sorts, and the solemnity of his deportment. They stood silent waiting to see what he would say, and he, fixing his eyes on the fair Dorothea, addressed her with great gravity and composure. I am informed, fair lady, by my squire here that your greatness has been annihilated and your being abolished, since, from a queen and lady of high degree as you used to be, you have been turned into a private maiden. If this has been done by the command of the magician king your father, through fear that I should not afford you the aid you need and are entitled to, I may tell you he did not know and does not know half the mass, and was little versed in the annals of chivalry, for, if he had read and gone through them as attentively and deliberately as I have, he would have found at every turn that knights of less renown than mine have accomplished things more difficult, it is no great matter to kill a whelp of a giant, however arrogant he may be, for it is not many hours since I myself was engaged with one, and, I will not speak of it, that they may not say I am lying, time, however, that reveals all, will tell the tale when we least expect it. You are engaged with a couple of wineskins, and not a giant, said the landlord at this, but Don Fernando told him to hold his tongue and on no account interrupt Don Quixote, who continued, I say in conclusion, high and disinherited lady, that if your father has brought about this metamorphosis in your person for the reason I have mentioned, you ought not to attach any importance to it for there is no peril on earth through which my sword will not force away, and with it, before many days are over, I will bring your enemy's head to the ground and place on yours the crown of your kingdom. Don Quixote said no more, and waited for the reply of the princess, who aware of Don Fernando's determination to carry on the deception until Don Quixote had been conveyed to his home, with great ease of manner and gravity made answer, whoever told you, valiant knight of the rueful countenance, that I had undergone any change or transformation did not tell you the truth for I am the same as I was yesterday. It is true that certain strokes of good fortune, that have given me more than I could have hoped for, have made some alteration in me, but I have not therefore ceased to be what I was before, or to entertain the same desire I have had all through of availing myself of the might of your valiant and invincible arm. And so, Señor, let your goodness reinstate the father that begot me in your good opinion, and be assured that he was a wise and prudent man, since by his craft he found out such a sure and easy way of remedying my misfortune. For I believe, Senor, that had it not been for you I should never have lit upon the good fortune I now possess, and in this I am saying what is perfectly true, as most of these gentlemen who are present can fully testify. All that remains is to set out on our journey tomorrow, for today we could not make much way, and for the rest of the happy result I am looking forward to, I trust to God and in the valor of your heart. So said the sprightly Dorothea, and on hearing her Don Quixote turned to Sancho, and said to him, with an angry air, I declare now, little Sancho, thou art the greatest little villain in Spain. Say, thief and vagabond, hast thou not just now told me that this princess had been turned into a maiden called Dorothea, and at the head which I am persuaded I cut off from a giant was the bitch that bore thee, and other nonsense that put me in the greatest perplexity I have ever been in all my life. I vow, and here he looked to heaven and ground his teeth, I have a mind to play the mischief with thee, in a way that will teach sense for the future to all lying squires of knights errant in the world. Let your worship be calm, senor, returned Sancho, 
for it may well be that I have been mistaken as to the change of the Lady Princess Mykamakona, but as to the giant's head, or at least as to the piercing of the wineskins, and the blood being red wine, I make no mistake, as sure as there is a God, because the wounded skins are there at the head of your worship's bed, and the wine has made a lake of the room, if not you will see when the eggs come to be fried, I mean when his worship the landlord calls for all the damages, for the rest, I am heartily glad that her ladyship the queen is as she was, for it concerns me as much as anyone. I tell thee again, Sancho, thou art a fool, said Don Quixote, forgive me, and that will do. That will do, said Don Fernando, let us say no more about it, and as her ladyship the princess proposes to set out tomorrow because it is too late today, so be it, and we will pass the night in pleasant conversation, and tomorrow we will all accompany Señor Don Quixote, for we wish to witness the valiant and unparalleled achievements he is about to perform in the course of this mighty enterprise which he has undertaken. It is I who shall wait upon and accompany you, said Don Quixote, and I am much gratified by the favour that is bestowed upon me, and the good opinion entertained of me, which I shall strive to justify or it shall cost me my life, or even more, if it can possibly cost me more. Many were the compliments and expressions of politeness that passed between Don Quixote and Don Fernando, but they were brought to an end by a traveller who at this moment entered the inn, and who seemed from his attire to be a Christian lately come from the country of the Moors, for he was dressed in a short-skirted coat of blue cloth with half-sleeves and without a collar, his breeches were also of blue cloth, and his cap of the same colour, and he wore yellow buskins and had a Moorish cutlass slung from a baldric across his breast. Behind him, mounted upon an ass, there came a woman dressed in Moorish fashion, with her face veiled and a scarf on her head, and wearing a little brocaded cap, and a mantle that covered her from her shoulders to her feet. The man was of a robust and well-proportioned frame, in age a little over forty, rather swarthy in complexion, with long moustaches and a full beard, and, in short, his appearance was such that if he had been well-dressed he would have been taken for a person of quality and good birth. On entering he asked for a room, and when they told him there was none in the inn he seemed distressed, and approaching her who by her dress seemed to be a moor, he took her down from the saddle in his arms. Lucinda, Dorothea, the landlady, her daughter and Maritornas, attracted by the strange, and to them entirely new costume, gathered round her, and Dorothea, who was always kindly, courteous, and quick-witted, perceiving that both she and the man who had brought her were annoyed at not finding a room, said to her, Do not be put out, Senora, by the discomfort and one of luxuries here, for it is the way of roadside inns to be without them. Still, if you will be pleased to share our lodging with us, pointing to Lucinda, perhaps you will have found worse accommodation in the course of your journey. To this the veiled lady made no reply, all she did was to rise from her seat, crossing her hands upon her bosom, bowing her head and bending her body as a sign that she returned thanks. From her silence they concluded that she must be a moor and unable to speak a Christian tongue. At this moment the captive came up, having been until now otherwise engaged, and seeing that they all stood round his companion and, and she made no reply to what they addressed to her, he said, Ladies, this damsel hardly understands my language and can speak none but that of her own country, for which reason she does not and cannot answer what has been asked of her. Nothing has been asked of her, returned Lucinda, she has only been offered our company for this evening and a share of the quarters we occupy, where she shall be made as comfortable as the circumstances allow, with the goodwill we are bound to show all strangers that stand in need of it, especially if it be a woman to whom the service is rendered. On her part and my own, Senora, replied the captive, I kiss your hands and I esteem highly, as I ought, the favour you have offered, which, on such an occasion and coming from persons of your appearance, is, it is plain to see, a very great one. Tell me, Senor, said Dorothea, is this lady a Christian or a Moor? For her dress and her silence lead us to imagine that she is what we could wish she was not. 
in dress and outwardly, said he, she is a more, but at heart she is a thoroughly good Christian, for she has the greatest desire to become one. Then she has not been baptized? returned Lucinda. There has been no opportunity for that, replied the captive, since she left Algiers, her native country and home, and up to the present she has not found herself in any such imminent danger of death as to make it necessary to baptize her before she has been instructed in all the ceremonies our Holy Mother Church ordains, but, please God, ere long she shall be baptized with the solemnity befitting her which is higher than her dress or mine indicates. By these words he excited a desire in all who heard him, to know who the Moorish lady and the captive were, but no one liked to ask just then, seeing that it was a fitter moment for helping them to rest themselves than for questioning them about their lives. Dorothea took the Moorish lady by the hand and leading her to a seat beside herself, requested her to remove her veil. She looked at the captive as if to ask him what they meant and what she was to do. He said to her in Arabic that they asked her to take off her veil, and thereupon she removed it and disclosed a countenance so lovely, that to Dorothea she seemed more beautiful than Lucinda, and to Lucinda more beautiful than Dorothea and all the bystanders felt that if any beauty could compare with theirs it was the Moorish ladies, and there were even those who were inclined to give it somewhat the preference. And as it is the privilege and charm of beauty to win the heart and secure goodwill, all forthwith became eager to show kindness and attention to the lovely Moor. Don Fernando asked the captive what her name was, and he replied that it was Leela Zoraida, but the instant she heard him, she guessed what the Christian had asked, and said hastily, with some displeasure and energy, no, not Zoraida, Maria, Maria giving them to understand that she was called Maria and not Zoraida. These words, and the touching earnestness with which she uttered them, drew more than one tear from some of the listeners, particularly the women, who are by nature tender-hearted and compassionate. Lucinda embraced her affectionately, saying, Yes, yes, Maria, Maria, to which the Moor replied, Yes, yes, Maria, Zoraida Macange, which means not Zoraida. Night was now approaching, and by the orders of those who accompanied Don Fernando the landlord had taken care and pains to prepare for them the best supper that was in his power. The hour therefore having arrived they all took their seats at a long table like a refectory one, for round of a square table there was none in the inn, and the seat of honour at the head of it, though he was for refusing it, they assigned to Don Quixote, who desired the lady Micomicona to place herself by his side, as he was her protector. Lucinda and Zoraida took their places next her, opposite to them were Don Fernando and Cardenio, and next the captive and the other gentlemen, and by the side of the ladies, the curate and the barber. And so they supped in high enjoyment, which was increased when they observed Don Quixote leave off eating, and, moved by an impulse like that which made him deliver himself at such length when he supped with the goatherds, begin to address them. Verily, gentlemen, if we reflect upon it, great and marvellous are the things they see, who make profession of the order of knight-errantry. Say, what being is there in this world, who entering the gate of this castle at this moment, and seeing us as we are here, would suppose or imagine us to be what we are? Who would say that this lady who is beside me was the great queen that we all know her to be, or that I am that knight of the rueful countenance, trumpeted far and wide by the mouth of fame? Now, there can be no doubt that this art and calling surpasses all those that mankind has invented, and is the more deserving of being held in honour in proportion as it is the more exposed to peril. Away with those who assert that letters have the preeminence over arms, I will tell them, whosoever they may be, that they know not what they say. For the reason which such persons commonly assign, and upon which they chiefly rest, is, that the labours of the mind are greater than those of the body, and that arms give employment to the body alone, as if the calling were a porter's trade, for which nothing more is required than sturdy strength, or as if, in what we who profess them call arms, there were not included acts of vigour for the execution of which high intelligence is requisite, or as if the soul of the warrior, when he has an army, 
or the defense of a city under his care, did not exert itself as much by mind as by body. Nay, see whether by bodily strength it be possible to learn or divine the intentions of the enemy, his plans, stratagems, or obstacles, or to ward off impending mischief, for all these are the work of the mind, and in them the body has no share whatever. Since, therefore, arms have need of the mind, as much as letters, let us see now which of the two minds, that of the man of letters or that of the warrior, has most to do, and this will be seen by the end and goal that each seeks to attain, for that purpose is the more estimable which has for its aim the nobler object. The end and goal of letters, I am not speaking now of divine letters, the aim of which is to raise and direct the soul to heaven, for with an end so infinite no other can be compared, I speak of human letters, the end of which is to establish distributive justice, give to every man that which is his, and see and take care that good laws are observed, an end undoubtedly noble, lofty, and deserving of high praise, but not such as should be given to that sought by arms, which have for their end and object peace, the greatest boon that men can desire in this life. The first good news the world and mankind received was that which the angels announced on the night that was our day, when they sang in the air, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to men of good will, and the salutation which the great Master of heaven and earth taught His disciples and chosen followers when they entered any house, was to say, Peace be on this house, and many other times He said to them, My peace I give unto you, my peace I leave you, peace be with you, a jewel and a precious gift given and left by such a hand, a jewel without which there can be no happiness either on earth or in heaven. This peace is the true end of war, and war is only another name for arms. This, then, being admitted, that the end of war is peace, and that so far it has the advantage of the end of letters, let us turn to the bodily labors of the man of letters, and those of him who follows the profession of arms, and see which are the greater. Don Quixote delivered his discourse in such a manner and in such correct language, that for the time being he made it impossible for any of his hearers to consider him a madman. On the contrary, as they were mostly gentlemen, to whom arms are an appurtenance by birth, they listened to him with great pleasure as he continued, Here, then, I say is what the student has to undergo. First of all poverty, not that all are poor, but to put the case as strongly as possible. And when I have said that he endures poverty, I think nothing more need be said about his hard fortune. For he who is poor has no share of the good things of life. This poverty he suffers from in various ways, hunger, or cold, or nakedness, or altogether, but for all that it is not so extreme but that he gets something to eat, though it may be at somewhat unseasonable hours and from the leavings of the rich, for the greatest misery of the student is what they themselves call going out for soup, and there is always some neighbor's brazier or hearth for them, which, if it does not warm, at least tempers the cold to them, and lastly, they sleep comfortably at night under a roof. I will not go into other particulars, as for example one of shirts, and no superabundance of shoes, thin and threadbare garments, and gorging themselves to surfeit in their voracity when good luck has treated them to a banquet of some sort. By this road that I have described, rough and hard, stumbling here, falling there, getting up again to fall again, they reach the rank they desire, and that once attained, we have seen many who have passed these Seerts and Scyllas and Charybdises, as if born flying on the wings of favoring fortune. We have seen them, I say, ruling and governing the world from a chair, their hunger turned into satiety, their cold into comfort, their nakedness into fine raiment, their sleep on a mat into repose in Holland and Damask, the justly earned reward of their virtue, but, contrasted and compared with what the warrior undergoes, all they have undergone falls far short of it, as I am now about to show. Chapter 38 Which treats of the curious discourse Don Quixote delivered on arms and letters. Continuing his discourse Don Quixote said, as we began in the student's case with poverty and its accompaniments, let us see now if the soldier is richer, and we shall find that in poverty itself there is no one poorer, for he is dependent on his miserable pay, which comes late or never, 
or else on what he can plunder, seriously imperiling his life and conscience, and sometimes his nakedness will be so great that a slash doublet serves him for uniform and shirt, and in the depth of winter he has to defend himself against the inclemency of the weather in the open field with nothing better than the breath of his mouth, which I need not say, coming from an empty place, must come out cold, contrary to the laws of nature. To be sure he looks forward to the approach of night to make up for all these discomforts on the bed that awaits him, which, unless by some fault of his, never sins by being over-narrow, for he can easily measure out on the ground as he likes, and roll himself about in it to his heart's content without any fear of the sheets slipping away from him. Then, after all this, suppose the day and hour for taking his degree in his calling to have come, suppose the day of battle to have arrived, when they invest him with the doctor's cap made of lint, to mend some bullet hole, perhaps, that has gone through his temples, or left him with a crippled arm or leg. Or if this does not happen, and merciful heaven watches over him and keeps him safe and sound, it may be he will be in the same poverty he was in before, and he must go through more engagements and more battles, and come victorious out of all before he betters himself, but miracles of that sort are seldom seen. For tell me, sirs, if you have ever reflected upon it, by how much do those who have gained by war fall short of the number of those who have perished in it? No doubt you will reply that there can be no comparison, that the dead cannot be numbered, while the living who have been rewarded may be summed up with three figures. All which is the reverse in the case of men of letters, for by skirts, to say nothing of sleeves, they all find means of support, so that though the soldier has more to endure, his reward is much less. But against all this it may be urged that it is easier to reward two thousand soldiers, for the former may be remunerated by giving them places, which must perforce be conferred upon men of their calling, while the latter can only be recompensed out of the very property of the master they serve, but this impossibility only strengthens my argument. Putting this, however, aside, for it is a puzzling question for which it is difficult to find a solution, let us return to the superiority of arms over letters, a matter still undecided, so many are the arguments put forward on each side, for besides those I have mentioned, letters say that without them arms cannot maintain themselves, for war, too, has its laws and is governed by them, and laws belong to the domain of letters and men of letters. To this arms make answer that without them laws cannot be maintained, for by arms states are defended, kingdoms preserved, cities protected, roads made safe, seas cleared of pirates, and, in short, if it were not for them, states, kingdoms, monarchies, cities, ways by sea and land would be exposed to the violence and confusion which war brings with it, so long as it lasts and is free to make use of its privileges and powers. And then it is plain that whatever costs most is valued and deserves to be valued most. To attain to eminence in letters costs a man time, watching, hunger, nakedness, headaches, indigestions, and other things of the sort, some of which I have already referred to. But for a man to come in the ordinary course of things to be a good soldier costs him all the student suffers, and in an incomparably higher degree, for at every step he runs the risk of losing his life. For what dread of one or poverty that can reach or harass the student can compare with what the soldier feels, who finds himself beleaguered in some stronghold mounting guard in some ravelin or cavalier, knows that the enemy is pushing a mind towards the post where he is stationed, and cannot under any circumstances retire or fly from the imminent danger that threatens him? All he can do is to inform his captain of what is going on so that he may try to remedy it by a countermine, and then stand his ground in fear and expectation of the moment when he will fly up to the clouds without wings and descend into the deep against his will. And if this seems a trifling risk, let us see whether it is equaled or surpassed by the encounter of two galleys stem to stem, in the midst of the open sea, locked and entangled one with the other, when the soldier has no more standing room than two feet of the plank of the spur. And yet, though he sees before him threatening him as many ministers of death as there are cannon of the foe pointed at him, not a lance length from his body, 
and sees too that with the first heedless step he will go down to visit the profundities of Neptune's bosom, still with dauntless heart, urged on by honor that nerves him, he makes himself a target for all that musketry, and struggles to cross that narrow path to the enemy's ship. And what is still more marvelous, no sooner has one gone down into the depths he will never rise from till the end of the world, than another takes his place, and if he too falls into the sea that waits for him like an enemy, another and another will succeed him without a moment's pause between their deaths, courage and daring the greatest that all the chances of war can show. Happy the blessed ages that knew not the dread fury of those devilish engines of artillery, whose inventor I am persuaded is in hell receiving the reward of his diabolical invention, by which he made it easy for a base and cowardly arm to take the life of a gallant gentleman, and that, when he knows not how or whence, in the height of the ardor and enthusiasm that fire and animate brave hearts, there should come some random bullet, discharged perhaps by one who fled in terror at the flash when he fired off his accursed machine, which in an instant puts an end to the projects and cuts off the life of one who deserved to live for ages to come. And thus when I reflect on this, I am almost tempted to say that in my heart I reap in of having adopted this profession of nighterrant and so detestable an age as we live in now, for though no peril can make me fear, still it gives me some uneasiness to think that powder and lead may rob me of the opportunity of making myself famous and renowned throughout the known earth by the might of my arm and the edge of my sword. But heavens will be done, if I succeed in my attempt I shall be all the more honoured, as I have faced greater dangers than the knights errant of yore expose themselves to. All this lengthy discourse Don Quixote delivered while the others supped, forgetting to raise a morsel to his lips, though Sancho more than once told him to eat his supper, as he would have time enough afterwards to say all he wanted. It excited fresh pity in those who had heard him to see a man of apparently sound sense, and with rational views on every subject he discussed, so hopelessly wanting in all, when his wretched unlucky chivalry was in question. The curate told him he was quite right in all he had said in favour of arms, and that he himself, though a man of letters and a graduate, was of the same opinion. They finished their supper, the cloth was removed, and while the hostess, her daughter, and Maritornas were getting Don Quixote of La Mancha's garret ready, in which it was arranged that the women were to be quartered by themselves for the night, Don Fernando begged the captive to tell them the story of his life, for it could not fail to be strange and interesting, to judge by the hints he had let fall on his arrival in company with Zoraida. To this the captive replied that he would very willingly yield to his request, only he feared his tale would not give them as much pleasure as he wished, nevertheless, not to be wanting in compliance, he would tell it. The curate and the others thanked him and added their entreaties, and he finding himself so pressed said there was no occasion ask, where a command had such weight, and added, if your worships will give me your attention you will hear a true story which, perhaps, fictitious ones constructed with ingenious and studied art cannot come up to. These words made them settle themselves in their places and preserve a deep silence, and he seeing them waiting on his words in mute expectation, began thus in a pleasant quiet voice. Chapter 39 Wherein the captive relates his life and adventures. My family had its origin in a village in the mountains of Leon, and nature had been kinder and more generous to it than fortune, though in the general poverty of those communities my father passed for being even a rich man, and he would have been so in reality had he been as clever in preserving his property as he was in spending it. This tendency of his to be liberal and profuse he had acquired from having been a soldier in his youth, for the soldier's life is a school in which the niggard becomes free-handed and the free-handed prodigal, and if any soldiers are to be found who are misers, they are monsters of rare occurrence. My father went beyond liberality and bordered on prodigality, a disposition by no means advantageous to a married man who has children to succeed to his name and position. My father had three, all sons, and all of sufficient age to make choice of a profession. Finding, then, that he was unable to resist his propensity, he resolved to divest himself of the instrument and cause of his prodigality and lavishness, 
to divest himself of wealth, without which Alexander himself would have seemed parsimonious, and so calling us all three aside one day into a room, he addressed us in words somewhat to the following effect. My sons, to assure you that I love you, no more need be known or said than that you are my sons, and to encourage a suspicion that I do not love you, no more is needed than the knowledge that I have no self-control as far as preservation of your patrimony is concerned, therefore, that you may for the future feel sure that I love you like a father, and have no wish to ruin you like a stepfather, I propose to do with you what I have for some time back meditated, and after mature deliberation decided upon. You are now of an age to choose your line of life or at least make choice of a calling that will bring you honor and profit when you are older, and what I have resolved to do is to divide my property into four parts, three I will give to you, to each his portion without making any difference, and the other I will retain to live upon and support myself for whatever remainder of life heaven may be pleased to grant me. But I wish each of you on taking possession of the share that falls to him to follow one of the paths I shall indicate. In this Spain of ours there is a proverb, to my mind very true, as they all are, being short aphorisms drawn from long practical experience, and the one I refer to says, the church, or the sea, or the king's house, as much as to say, in plainer language, whoever wants to flourish and become rich, let him follow the church, or go to sea, adopting commerce as his calling, or go into the king's service in his household, for they say, better a king's crumb than a lord's favor. I say so because it is my will and pleasure that one of you should follow letters, another trade, and the third serve the king in the wars, for it is a difficult matter to gain admission to his service in his household, and if war does not bring much wealth it confers great distinction and fame. Eight days hence I will give you your full shares in money, without defrauding you of a farthing, as you will see in the end. Now tell me if you are willing to follow out my idea and advice as I have laid it before you. Having called upon me as the eldest to answer, I, after urging him not to strip himself of his property but to spend it all as he pleased, for we were young men able to gain our living, consented to comply with his wishes, and said that mine were to follow the profession of arms and thereby serve God and my king. My second brother having made the same proposal, decided upon going to the Indies, embarking the portion that fell to him in trade. The youngest, and in my opinion the wisest, said he would rather follow the church, or go to complete his studies at Salamanca. As soon as we had come to an understanding, and made choice of our professions, my father embraced us all, and in the short time he mentioned carried into effect all he had promised, and when he had given to each his share, which as well as I remember was three thousand ducats apiece in cash, for an uncle of ours bought the estate and paid for it down, not to let it go out of the family, we all three on the same day took leave of our good father, and at the same time, as it seemed to me inhuman to leave my father with such scanty means in his old age, I induced him to take two of my three thousand ducats, as the remainder would be enough to provide me with all a soldier needed. My two brothers, moved by my example, gave him each a thousand ducats, so that there was left for my father four thousand ducats in money, besides three thousand, the value of the portion that fell to him which he preferred to retain in land instead of selling it. Finally, as I said, we took leave of him, and of our uncle whom I have mentioned, not without sorrow and tears on both sides, they charging us to let them know whenever an opportunity offered how we fared, whether well or ill. We promised to do so, and when he had embraced us and given us his blessing, one set out for Salamanca, the other for Seville, and I for Alicante, where I had heard there was a Genoese vessel taking in a cargo of wool for Genoa. It is now some twenty-two years since I left my father's house, and all that time, though I have written several letters, I have had no news whatever of him or of my brothers, my own adventures during that period I will now relate briefly. I embarked at Alicante, reached Genoa after a prosperous voyage, and proceeded thence to Milan, where I provided myself with arms and a few soldiers' accoutrements, thence it was my intention to go and take service in Piedmont, but as I was already on the road to Alessandria della Paglia, 
I learned that the great Duke of Alva was on his way to Flanders. I changed my plans, joined him, served under him in the campaigns he made, was present at the deaths of the Counts Egmont and Horn, and was promoted to be ensign under a famous captain of Guadalajara, Diego de Urbina by name. Sometime after my arrival in Flanders news came of the league that His Holiness Pope Pius V of happy memory, had made with Venice and Spain against the common enemy, the Turk, who had just then with his fleet taken the famous island of Cyprus, which belonged to the Venetians, a loss deplorable and disastrous. It was known as a fact that the most serene Don John of Austria, natural brother of our good King Don Philip, was coming as commander-in-chief of the Allied forces, and rumours were abroad of the vast warlike preparations which were being made, all which stirred my heart and filled me with a longing to take part in the campaign which was expected, and though I had reason to believe, and almost certain promises, that on the first opportunity that presented itself I should be promoted to be captain, I preferred to leave all and betake myself, as I did, to Italy, and it was my good fortune that Don John had just arrived at Genoa, and was going on to Naples to join the Venetian fleet, as he afterwards did at Messina. I may say, in short, that I took part in that glorious expedition, promoted by this time to be a captain of infantry, to which honourable charge my good luck rather than my merits raised me, and that day, so fortunate for Christendom, because then all the nations of the earth were disabused of the error under which they lay in imagining the Turks to be invincible on sea on that day, I say, on which the Ottoman pride and arrogance were broken, among all that were there made happy, for the Christians who died that day were happier than those who remained alive and victorious, I alone was miserable, for, instead of some naval crown that I might have expected had it been in Roman times, on the night that followed that famous day I found myself with fetters on my feet and manacles on my hands. It happened in this way, El Uchali, the king of Algiers, a daring and successful corsair, having attacked and taken the leading Maltese galley, only three knights being left alive in it, and they badly wounded, the chief galley of John Andrea, on board of which I and my company were placed, came to its relief, and doing as was bound to do in such a case, I leapt on board the enemy's galley, which, shearing off from that which had attacked it, prevented my men from following me, and so I found myself alone in the midst of my enemies, who were in such numbers that I was unable to resist, in short I was taken, covered with wounds, El Uchali, as you know, sirs, made his escape with his entire squadron, and I was left a prisoner in his power, the only sad being among so many filled with joy, and the only captive among so many free, for there were fifteen thousand Christians, all at the or in the Turkish fleet, that regained their longed-for liberty that day. They carried me to Constantinople, where the Grand Turk, Selim, made my master-general at sea for having done his duty in the battle and carried off as evidence of his bravery the standard of the Order of Malta. The following year, which was the year 72, I found myself at Navarino rowing in the leading galley with the three lanterns. There I saw and observed how the opportunity of capturing the whole Turkish fleet in harbour was lost, for all the marines and janissaries that belonged to it made sure that they were about to be attacked inside the very harbour, and had their kits and passamax, or shoes, ready to flee at once on shore without waiting to be assailed, in so great fear did they stand of our fleet. But heaven ordered it otherwise, not for any fault or neglect of the general who commanded on our side, but for the sins of Christendom, and because it was God's will and pleasure that we should always have instruments of punishment to chastise us. As it was, El Uchali took refuge at Maden, which is an island near Navarino, and landing forces fortified the mouth of the harbour and waited quietly until Don John retired. On this expedition was taken the galley called the Prize, whose captain was a son of the famous corsair Barbarossa. It was taken by the chief Neapolitan galley called the She-Wolf, commanded by that thunderbolt of war, that father of his men, that successful and unconquered captain Don Alvaro de Vazen, Marquis of Santa Cruz, and I cannot help telling you what took place at the capture of the prize. The son of Barbarossa was so cruel, 
and treated his slaves so badly, that, when those who were at the oars saw that the she-wolf galley was bearing down upon them and gaining upon them, they all at once dropped their oars and seized their captain who stood on the stage at the end of the gangway shouting to them to row lustily, and passing him on from bench to bench, from the poop to the prow, they so bid him that before he had got much past the mast his soul had already got to hell, so great, as I said, was the cruelty with which he treated them, and the hatred with which they hated him. We returned to Constantinople, and the following year, 73, it became known that Don John had seized Tunis and taken the kingdom from the Turks, and placed Muley Hamid in possession, putting an end to the hopes which Muley Hamida, the cruelest and bravest Mur in the world, entertained of returning to reign there. The Grand Turk took the loss greatly to heart, and with the cunning which all his race possess, he made peace with the Venetians, who were much more eager for it than he was, and the following year, 74, he attacked the Galetta and the fort which Don John had left half-built near Tunis. While all these events were occurring, I was laboring at the oar without any hope of freedom, at least I had no hope of obtaining it by ransom, for I was firmly resolved not to write to my father telling him of my misfortunes. At length the Galetta fell, and the fort fell, before which places there were 75,000 regular Turkish soldiers, and more than 400,000 Moors and Arabs from all parts of Africa, and in the train of all this great host such munitions and engines of war, and so many pioneers that with their hands they might have covered the Galetta and the fort with handfuls of earth. The first to fall was the Galetta, until then reckoned impregnable, and it fell, not by any fault of its defenders, who did all that they could and should have done, but because experiment proved how easily entrenchments could be made in the desert sand there, for water used to be found at two palms depth, while the Turks found none at two yards, and so by means of a quantity of sandbags they raised their works so high that they commanded the walls of the fort, sweeping them as if from a cavalier, so that no one was able to make a stand or maintain the defence. It was a common opinion that our men should not have shut themselves up in the Galetta, but should have waited in the open at the landing-place, but those who say so talk at random and with little knowledge of such matters, for if in the Galetta and in the fort there were barely seven thousand soldiers, how could such a small number, however resolute, sally out and hold their own against numbers like those of the enemy? And how is it possible to help losing a stronghold that is not relieved, above all when surrounded by a host of determined enemies in their own country? But many thought, and I thought so too, that it was special favour and mercy which heaven showed to Spain in permitting the destruction of that source and hiding place of mischief, that devourer, sponge, and moth of countless money, fruitlessly wasted there to no other purpose save preserving the memory of its capture by the invincible Charles V, as if to make that eternal, as it is and will be, these stones were needed to support it. The fort also fell, but the Turks had to win it inch by inch, for the soldiers who defended it fought so gallantly and stoutly that the number of the enemy killed in 22 general assaults exceeded 25,000. Of 300 that remained alive not one was taken unwounded, a clear and manifest proof of their gallantry and resolution, and how sturdily they had defended themselves and held their post. A small fort or tower which was in the middle of the lagoon under the command of Don Juan Zanagra, a Valencian gentleman and a famous soldier, capitulated upon terms. They took prisoner Don Pedro Pierdicarero, commandant of the Galetta, who had done all in his power to defend his fortress, and took the loss of it so much to heart that he died of grief on the way to Constantinople, where they were carrying him a prisoner. They also took the commandant of the fort, Gabriel Serbellan by name, a Milanese gentleman, a great engineer and a very brave soldier. In these two fortresses perished many persons of note, among whom was Pagano Doria, knight of the Order of St. John, a man of generous disposition, as was shown by his extreme liberality to his brother, the famous John Andrea Doria, and what made his death the more sad was that he was slain by some Arabs to whom, seeing that the fort was now lost, he entrusted himself, and who offered to conduct him in the disguise of a moor to Tabarca, 
a small fort or station on the coast held by the Genoese employed in the coral fishery. These Arabs cut off his head and carried it to the commander of the Turkish fleet, who proved on them the truth of our Castilian proverb, that though the treason may please, the traitor is hated, for they say he ordered those who brought him the present to be hanged for not having brought him alive. Among the Christians who were taken in the fort was one named Don Pedro de Aguilar, a native of some place, I know not what, in Andalusia, who had been ensign in the fort, a soldier of great repute and rare intelligence, who had in particular a special gift for what they call poetry. I say so because his fate brought him to my galley and to my bench, and made him a slave to the same master, and before we left the port this gentleman composed two sonnets by way of epitaphs, one on the galetta and the other on the fort, indeed, I may as well repeat them, for I have them by heart, and I think they will be liked rather than disliked. The instant the captive mentioned the name of Don Pedro de Aguilar, Don Fernando looked at his companions and they all three smiled, and when he came to speak of the sonnets one of them said, before your worship proceeds any further I entreat you to tell me what became of that Don Pedro de Aguilar you have spoken of. All I know is, replied the captive, that after having been in Constantinople two years, he escaped in the disguise of an Arnaud, in company with a Greek spy, but whether he regained his liberty or not I cannot tell, though I fancy he did, because a year afterwards I saw the Greek at Constantinople, though I was unable to ask him what the result of the journey was. Well then, you are right, returned the gentleman, for that Don Pedro is my brother, and he is now in our village in good health, rich, married, and with three children. Thanks be to God for all the mercies he has shown him, said the captive, for to my mind there is no happiness on earth to compare with recovering lost liberty. And what is more, said the gentleman, I know the sonnets my brother made. Then let your worship repeat them, said the captive, for you will recite them better than I can. With all my heart, said the gentleman, that on the galetta runs thus. Chapter 40. In which the story of the captive is continued. Sonnet blessed souls, that, from this mortal husk set free, in guerdon of brave deeds beatified, above this lowly orb of ours abide made heirs of heaven and immortality, with noble rage and ardor glowing ye your strength, while strength was yours, in battle plied, and with your own blood and the foemen's died the sandy soil and the encircling sea. It was the ebbing life blood first that failed the weary arms, the stout hearts never quailed. Though vanquished, yet ye earned the victor's crown though mourned, yet still triumphant was your fall for there ye won, between the sword and wall, in heaven glory and on earth renown. That is it exactly, according to my recollection, said the captive. Well then, that on the fort, said the gentleman, if my memory serves me, goes thus. Sonnet up from this wasted soil, this shattered shell, whose walls and towers here in ruin lie, three thousand soldier souls took wing on high, in the bright mansions of the blessed to dwell. The onslaught of the foemen to repel by might of arm all vainly did they try, and when at length twas left them but to die, wearied and few the last defenders fell. And this same arid soil hath ever been a haunt of countless mournful memories, as well in our day as in days of yore. But never yet to heaven it sent, a ween, from its hard bosom purer souls than these, or braver bodies on its surface bore. The sonnets were not disliked, and the captive was rejoiced at the tidings they gave him of his comrade, and continuing his tale, he went on to say. The galetta and the fort being thus in their hands, the Turks gave orders to dismantle the galetta, for the fort was reduced to such a state that there was nothing left to level, and to do the work more quickly and easily they mined it in three places, but nowhere were they able to blow up the part which seemed to be the least strong, that is to say, the old walls, while all that remained standing of the new fortifications that the Fratin had made came to the ground with the greatest ease. Finally the fleet returned victorious and triumphant to Constantinople, and a few months later died my master, El Uchali, otherwise Uchali Fartax, which means in Turkish the scabby renegade, for that he was, 
It is the practice with the Turks to name people from some defect or virtue they may possess, the reason being that there are among them only four surnames belonging to families tracing their descent from the Ottoman house, and the others, as I have said, take their names and surnames either from bodily blemishes or moral qualities. This scabby one rode at the oar as a slave of the grand seniors for fourteen years, and when over thirty-four years of age, in resentment at having been struck by a Turk while at the oar, turned renegade and renounced his faith in order to be able to revenge himself, and such was his valour that, without owing his advancement to the base ways and means by which most favourites of the grand seigneur rise to power, he came to be king of Algiers, and afterwards general on sea, which is the third place of trust in the realm. He was a Calabrian by birth, and a worthy man morally, and he treated his slaves with great humanity. He had three thousand of them, and after his death they were divided, as he directed by his will, between the grand seigneur, who is heir of all who die and shares with the children of the deceased, and his renegades. I fell to the lot of a Venetian renegade who, when a cabin boy on board a ship, had been taken by Uchali and was so much beloved by him that he became one of his most favoured youths. He came to be the most cruel renegade I ever saw, his name was Hassan Aga, and he grew very rich and became king of Algiers. With him I went there from Constantinople, rather glad to be so near Spain, not that I intended to write to anyone about my unhappy lot, but to try if fortune would be kinder to me in Algiers than in Constantinople, where I had attempted in a thousand ways to escape without ever finding a favourable time or chance, but in Algiers I resolved to seek for other means of effecting the purpose I cherished so dearly, for the hope of obtaining my liberty never deserted me, and when in my plots and schemes and attempts the result did not answer my expectations, without giving way to despair I immediately began to look out for or conjure up some new hope to support me, however faint or feeble it might be. In this way I lived on a mured in a building or prison called by the Turks Abano in which they confine the Christian captives, as well those that are the kings as those belonging to private individuals, and also what they call those of the Almasen, which is as much as to say the slaves of the municipality, who serve the city in the public works and other employments, but captives of this kind recover their liberty with great difficulty, for, as they are public property and have no particular master, there is no one with whom to treat for their ransom, even though they may have the means. To these banyos, as I have said, some private individuals of the town are in the habit of bringing their captives, especially when they are to be ransomed, because there they can keep them in safety and comfort until their ransom arrives. The king's captives also, that are on ransom, do not go out to work with the rest of the crew, unless when their ransom is delayed, for then, to make them right for it more pressingly, they compel them to work and go for wood, which is no light labour. I, however, was one of those on ransom, for when it was discovered that I was a captain, although I declared my scanty means and one of fortune, nothing could dissuade them from including me among the gentlemen and those waiting to be ransomed. They put a chain on me, more as a mark of this than to keep me safe, and so I passed my life in that bono with several other gentlemen and persons of quality marked out as held to ransom, but though at times, or rather almost always, we suffered from hunger and scanty clothing, nothing distressed us so much as hearing and seeing at every turn the unexampled and unheard-of cruelties my master inflicted upon the Christians. Every day he hanged a man, impaled one, cut off the ears of another, and all with so little provocation, or so entirely without any, that the Turks acknowledged he did it merely for the sake of doing it, and because he was by nature murderously disposed towards the whole human race. The only one that fared at all well with him was a Spanish soldier, something to Saavedra by name, to whom he never gave a blow himself, or ordered a blow to be given, or addressed a hard word, although he had done things that will dwell in the memory of the people there for many a year, and all to recover his liberty, and for the least of the many things he did we all dreaded that he would be impaled, and he himself was in fear of it more than once, and only that time does not allow, I could tell you now something of what that soldier did, 
that would interest and astonish you much more than the narration of my own tale. To go on with my story, the courtyard of our prison was overlooked by the windows of the house belonging to a wealthy moor of high position, and these, as is usual in Moorish houses, were rather loopholes than windows, and besides were covered with thick and close lattice work. It so happened, then, that as I was one day on the terrace of our prison with three other comrades, trying, to pass away the time, how far we could leap with our chains, we being alone, for all the other Christians had gone out to work, I chanced to raise my eyes, and from one of these little closed windows I saw a reed appear with a cloth attached to the end of it, and it kept waving to and fro, and moving as if making signs to us to come and take it. We watched it, and one of those who were with me went and stood under the reed to see whether they would let it drop, or what they would do, but as he did so the reed was raised and moved from side to side, as if they meant to say no by a shake of the head. The Christian came back, and it was again lowered, making the same movements as before. Another of my comrades went, and with him the same happened as with the first, and then the third went forward, but with the same result as the first and second. Seeing this I did not like not to try my luck, and as soon as I came under the reed it was dropped and fell inside the bono at my feet. I hastened to untie the cloth, in which I perceived a knot, and in this were tensionous, which are coins of base gold, current among the moors, and each worth ten reals of our money. It is needless to say I rejoiced over this godsend, and my joy was not less than my wonder as I strove to imagine how this good fortune could have come to us, but to me specially, for the evident unwillingness to drop the reed for any but me showed that it was for me the favour was intended. I took my welcome money, broke the reed, and returned to the terrace, and looking up at the window, I saw a very white hand put out that opened and shut very quickly. From this we gathered or fancied that it must be some woman living in that house that had done us this kindness, and to show that we were grateful for it, we made salams after the fashion of the moors, bowing the head, bending the body, and crossing the arms on the breast. Shortly afterwards at the same window a small cross made of reeds was put out and immediately withdrawn. This sign led us to believe that some Christian woman was a captive in the house, and that it was she who had been so good to us, but the whiteness of the hand and the bracelets we had perceived made us dismiss that idea, though we thought it might be one of the Christian renegades whom their masters very often take as lawful wives, and gladly, for they prefer them to the women of their own nation. In all our conjectures we were wide of the truth, so from that time forward our sole occupation was watching and gazing at the window where the cross had appeared to us, as if it were our pole star, but at least fifteen days passed without our seeing either it or the hand, or any other sign and though meanwhile we endeavoured with the utmost pains to ascertain who it was that lived in the house, and whether there were any Christian renegade in it, nobody could ever tell us anything more than that he who lived there was a rich moor of high position, Haji Murado by name, formerly Al-Qaeda of La Pata, an office of high dignity among them. But when we least thought it was going to rain any Morshinus from that quarter, we saw the reed suddenly appear with another cloth tied and a larger knot attached to it, and this at a time when, as on the former occasion, the bano was deserted and unoccupied. We made trial as before, each of the same three going forward before I did, but the reed was delivered to none but me, and on my approach it was let drop. I untied the knot and I found forty Spanish gold crowns with a paper written in Arabic, and at the end of the writing there was a large cross drawn. I kissed the cross, took the crowns and returned to the terrace, and we all made our salams, again the hand appeared, I made signs that I would read the paper, and then the window was closed. We were all puzzled, though filled with joy at what had taken place, and as none of us understood Arabic, great was our curiosity to know what the paper contained, and still greater the difficulty of finding someone to read it. At last I resolved to confide in a renegade, a native of Mercia, who professed a very great friendship for me, and had given pledges that bound him to keep any secret I might entrust to him, for it is the custom with some renegades, when they intend to return to Christian territory, to carry about them certificates from captives of Mark testifying, 
in whatever form they can, that such and such a renegade is a worthy man who has always shown kindness to Christians, and is anxious to escape on the first opportunity that may present itself. Some obtain these testimonials with good intentions, others put them to a cunning use, for when they go to pillage on Christian territory, if they chance to be cast away, or taken prisoners, they produce their certificates and say that from these papers may be seen the object they came for, which was to remain on Christian ground, and that it was to this end they joined the Turks in their foray. In this way they escape the consequences of the first outburst and make their peace with the church before it does them any harm, and then when they have the chance they return to Barbary to become what they were before. Others, however, there are who procure these papers and make use of them honestly, and remain on Christian soil. This friend of mine, then, was one of these renegades that I have described, he had certificates from all our comrades, in which we testified in his favour as strongly as we could, and if the Moors had found the papers they would have burned him alive. I knew that he understood Arabic very well, and could not only speak but also write it, but before I disclosed the whole matter to him, I asked him to read for me this paper which I had found by accident in a hole in my cell. He opened it and remained some time examining it and muttering to himself as he translated it. I asked him if he understood it, and he told me he did perfectly well, and that if I wished him to tell me its meaning word for word, I must give him pen and ink that he might do it more satisfactorily. We at once gave him what he required, and he set about translating it bit by bit, and when he had done he said. All that is here in Spanish is what the Moorish paper contains, and you must bear in mind that when it says Lila Marian it means Our Lady the Virgin Mary. We read the paper and it ran thus. When I was a child my father had a slave who taught me to pray the Christian prayer in my own language, and told me many things about Lila Marian. The Christian died, and I know that she did not go to the fire, but to Allah because since then I have seen her twice, and she told me to go to the land of the Christians to see Lila Marian, who had great love for me. I know not how to go. I have seen many Christians, but except thyself none has seemed to me to be a gentleman. I am young and beautiful, and have plenty of money to take with me. See if thou canst contrive how we may go, and if thou wilt thou shalt be my husband there, and if thou wilt not it will not distress me, for Lila Marian will find me some one to marry me. I myself have written this, have a care to whom thou givest it to read, trust no more, for they are all perfidious. I am greatly troubled on this account, for I would not have thee confide in anyone, because if my father knew it he would at once fling me down a well and cover me with stones. I will put a thread to the reed, tie the answer to it, and if thou hast no one to write for thee in Arabic, tell it to me by signs, for Lila Marian will make me understand thee. She and Allah in this cross, which I often kiss as the captive bade me, protect thee. Judge, sirs, whether we had reason for surprise and joy at the words of this paper, and both one and the other were so great, that the renegade perceived that the paper had not been found by chance, but had been in reality addressed to some one of us, and he begged us, if what he suspected were the truth, to trust him and tell him all, for he would risk his life for our freedom, and so saying he took out from his breast a metal crucifix, and with many tears swore by the God the image represented, in whom, sinful and wicked as he was, he truly and faithfully believed, to be loyal to us and keep secret whatever we chose to reveal to him, for he thought and almost foresaw that by means of her who had written that paper, he and all of us would obtain our liberty, and he himself obtained the object he so much desired, his restoration to the bosom of the Holy Mother Church, from which by his own sin and ignorance he was now severed like a corrupt limb. The renegade said this with so many tears and such signs of repentance, that with one consent we all agreed to tell him the whole truth of the matter, and so we gave him a full account of all, without hiding anything from him. We pointed out to him the window at which the reed appeared, and he by that means took note of the house, and resolved to ascertain with particular care who lived in it. We agreed also that it would be advisable to answer the Moorish lady's letter, and the renegade without a moment's delay took down the words I dictated to him, 
which were exactly what I shall tell you, for nothing of importance that took place in this affair has escaped my memory, or ever will while life lasts. This, then, was the answer returned to the Moorish lady. The true Allah protect thee, lady, and that blessed Marian who is the true mother of God, and who has put it into thy heart to go to the land of the Christians, because she loves thee. Entreat her that she be pleased to show thee how thou canst execute the command she gives thee, for she will, such is her goodness. On my own part, and on that of all these Christians who are with me, I promise to do all that we can for thee, even to death. Fail not to write to me and inform me what thou dost mean to do, and I will always answer thee, for the great Allah has given us a Christian captive who can speak and write thy language well, as thou mayest see by this paper, without fear, therefore, thou canst inform us of all thou wouldst. As to what thou sayest, that if thou dost reach the land of the Christians thou wilt be my wife, I give thee my promise upon it as a good Christian, and know that the Christians keep their promises better than the Moors. Allah and Marian his mother watch over thee, my lady. The paper being written and folded I waited two days until the bano was empty as before, and immediately repaired to the usual walk on the terrace to see if there were any sign of the reed, which was not long in making its appearance. As soon as I saw it, although I could not distinguish who put it out, I showed the paper as a sign to attach the thread, but it was already fixed to the reed, and to it I tied the paper, and shortly afterwards our star once more made its appearance with the white flag of peace, the little bundle. It was dropped, and I picked it up, and found in the cloth, in gold and silver coins of all sorts, more than fifty crowns, which fifty times more strengthened our joy and doubled our hope of gaining our liberty. That very night our renegade returned and said he had learned that the more we had been told of lived in that house, that his name was Haji Murado, that he was enormously rich, that he had one only daughter the heiress of all his wealth, and that it was the general opinion throughout the city that she was the most beautiful woman in Barbary, and that several of the viceroys who came there had sought her for a wife, but that she had been always unwilling to marry, and he had learned, moreover, that she had a Christian slave who was now dead, all which agreed with the contents of the paper. We immediately took counsel with the renegade as to what means would have to be adopted in order to carry off the Moorish lady and bring us all to Christian territory, and in the end it was agreed that for the present we should wait for a second communication from Zoraida, for that was the name of her who now desires to be called Maria, because we saw clearly that she and no one else could find a way out of all these difficulties. When we had decided upon this the renegade told us not to be uneasy, for he would lose his life or restore us to liberty. For four days the bano was filled with people, for which reason the reed delayed its appearance for four days, but at the end of that time, when the bano was, as it generally was, empty, it appeared with the cloth so bulky that it promised a happy birth. Reed and cloth came down to me, and I found another paper and a hundred crowns in gold, without any other coin. The renegade was present, and in our cell we gave him the paper to read, which was to this effect. I cannot think of a plan, Señor, for our going to Spain, nor has Lila Marian shown me one, though I have asked her. All that can be done is for me to give you plenty of money and gold from this window. With it ransom yourself and your friends, and let one of you go to the land of the Christians, and there buy a vessel and come back for the others, and he will find me in my father's garden, which is at the Babazon gate near the seashore, where I shall be all this summer with my father and my servants. You can carry me away from there by night without any danger, and bring me to the vessel. And remember thou art to be my husband, else I will pray to Marion to punish thee. If thou canst not trust anyone to go for the vessel, ransom thyself and do thou go, for I know thou wilt return more surely than any other, as thou art a gentleman and a Christian. Endeavour to make thyself acquainted with the garden, and when I see thee walking yonder I shall know that the bano is empty and I will give thee abundance of money. Allah protect thee, Signor. These were the words and contents of the second paper, and on hearing them, each declared himself willing to be the ransomed one, and promised to go and return with scrupulous good faith, 
and I too made the same offer, but to all this the renegade objected, saying that he would not on any account consent to one being set free before all went together, as experience had taught him how will those who have been set free keep promises which they made in captivity, for captives of distinction frequently had recourse to this plan, paying the ransom of one who was to go to Valencia or Majorca with money to enable him to arm a bark and return for the others who had ransomed him, but who never came back, for recovered liberty and the dread of losing it again efface from the memory all the obligations in the world. And to prove the truth of what he said, he told us briefly what had happened to a certain Christian gentleman almost at that very time, the strangest case that had ever occurred even there, where astonishing and marvelous things are happening every instant. In short, he ended by saying that what could and ought to be done was to give the money intended for the ransom of one of us Christians to him, so that he might with it buy a vessel there in Algiers under the pretense of becoming a merchant and trader at Taitwan and along the coast, and when master of the vessel, it would be easy for him to hit on some way of getting us all out of the Bono and putting us on board, especially if the Moorish lady gave, as she said, money enough to ransom all, because once free it would be the easiest thing in the world for us to embark even in open day, but the greatest difficulty was that the Moors do not allow any renegade to buy or own any craft, unless it be a large vessel for going on roving expeditions, because they are afraid that anyone who buys a small vessel, especially if he be a Spaniard, only wants it for the purpose of escaping to Christian territory. This however he could get over by arranging with a tagger and more to go shares with him in the purchase of the vessel, and in the profit on the cargo, and under cover of this he could become master of the vessel, in which case he looked upon all the rest as accomplished. But though to me and my comrades it had seemed a better plan to send to Majorca for the vessel, as the Moorish lady suggested, we did not dare to oppose him, fearing that if we did not do as he said he would denounce us, and place us in danger of losing all our lives if he were to disclose our dealings with Zoraida, for whose life we would have all given our own. We therefore resolved to put ourselves in the hands of God and in the renegades, and at the same time an answer was given to Zoraida, telling her that we would do all she recommended, for she had given as good advice as if Lila Marian had delivered it, and that it depended on her alone whether we were to defer the business or put it in execution at once. I renewed my promise to be her husband, and thus the next day that the Bono chanced to be empty she at different times gave us by means of the reed and cloth two thousand gold crowns and a paper in which she said that the next Juma, that is to say Friday, she was going to her father's garden, but that before she went she would give us more money, and if it were not enough we were to let her know, as she would give us as much as we asked, for her father had so much he would not miss it, and besides she kept all the keys. We at once gave the renegade five hundred crowns to buy the vessel, and with eight hundred I ransomed myself, giving the money to a Valencian merchant who happened to be in Algiers at the time, and who had me released on his word, pledging it that on the arrival of the first ship from Valencia he would pay my ransom, for if he had given the money at once it would have made the king suspect that my ransom money had been for a long time in Algiers, and that the merchant had for his own advantage kept it secret. In fact my master was so difficult to deal with that I dared not on any account pay down the money at once. The Thursday before the Friday on which the fair Zoraida was to go to the garden she gave us a thousand crowns more, and warned us of her departure, begging me, if I were ransomed, to find out her father's garden at once, and by all means to seek an opportunity of going there to see her. I answered in a few words that I would do so, and that she must remember to commend us to Lila Marianne with all the prayers the captive had taught her. This having been done, steps were taken to ransom our three comrades, so as to enable them to quit the Bono, and lest, seeing me ransomed and themselves not, though the money was forthcoming, they should make a disturbance about it and the devil should prompt them to do something that might injure Zoraida, for though their position might be sufficient to relieve me from this apprehension, nevertheless I was unwilling to run any risk in the matter, and so I had them ransomed in the same way as I was, handing over all the money to the merchant so that he might with safety and confidence give security, without, 
however, confiding our arrangement in secret to him, which might have been dangerous. 物語の続きはホームページからお聞きいただけます。またテキスト MP3 ダウンロードも合わせてご利用ください。88thpp.com88thpp.com 88thpp.com